0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens discuss new opportunities in the Alts universe. From direct investments to DSTs, opportunity zones, private equity, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And I'm your co-host, Andy Hagans. Great to be back here with another episode with you, Andy. Today, we're here to discuss passive investing in farmland and agribusiness. And joining us today from my neck of the woods right here in Fort Worth, Texas, is Chris Raleigh, founder and CEO of Harvest Returns. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Jimmy, Andy, it's great to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Chris. Uh, Great to have you here. So why farming and agribusiness? I'm curious, uh, what opportunity do you offer to high net worth investors?
2: So we started this company in 2016, because I saw the need in my own portfolio to start to find some alternative investments. I invested in real estate for quite some time. And I became very interested in agriculture in around 2014, 2015. And looked at all the ways to invest in this uh, asset class and the vehicles out there, they just weren't very promising. There are some publicly traded REITs, which were largely correlated with the rest of the stock market. So to me, that kind of defeats the purpose of investing in alternative assets. And the most direct way, of course, is to go out and purchase a farm and either operate it yourself or, or pay somebody to operate it. But that, of course, that requires significant amounts of capital, uh, know-how, and it's anything but passive. So Around uh, 2015, 2016, we we started this company and have been building ever since. And what our investment thesis is, agriculture, agribusiness is a strong asset class because, number one, the demographics are solid. If you look at agriculture and real estate, it's it's the two most essential industries on earth. Everyone touches agriculture. Everyone has to eat. Everyone uh, benefits from the products that farmers and ranchers and other uh, companies produce and dem- the demographics continue to grow. So the population of the world continues to grow as populations around the world become wealthier as they all are. For the most part, they consume more calories, more protein. And so that requires more agricultural production. So so the first part is it's just purely the demographics driving the market. The second uh, reason we like agriculture is the potential for outsized returns. And if you look at uh, just Compare asset classes over the long-term versus say the stock market, bonds, gold, farmland, just one segment of farmland in particular, American farmland has outperformed them all over the long-term. And then finally, just for the pure diversification value of farming, agriculture, it's recession-proof. We saw this during COVID. It's not correlated with the stock in the bond markets. And if you avoid some of the major highly traded commodities, like wheat, soy, corn, those sorts of things, you can avoid volatility in a, in a market by having a nice, illiquid, steadily growing asset.
1: Yeah, the liquid versions of this type of asset, the, the publicly traded REITs, I suppose, as you mentioned rightly, Chris, a minute ago, they're highly correlated with the stock market or could be more highly correlated with the stock market than, than something illiquid and more of a direct investment structure in, in a privately held fund. Uh, what, what types of agricultural verticals are you guys investing in? Like, can you tell us a little bit more about the types of deals that you're investing in within your funds?
2: Yeah, so we invest directly with producing farmers or ranchers or agribusinesses in a few different verticals. And the first one of those is controlled environment agriculture, also known as indoor agriculture. And this is something that's popping up all over the country. And there's two main forms of it. So one is sort of the urban vertical farm You might see in an urban area, kind of small scale, might be in a warehouse, old building, industrial areas, those sorts of things. Small scale, delivering directly to consumer or local restaurants, local grocery stores. There's also a larger version of controlled environment agriculture. These are greenhouses that are large-scale, high-tech glass greenhouses, providing growing potentially acres of crop year-round in areas that, wouldn't normally grow those crops, whether it's leafy greens, vegetables like tomatoes in places across the country, including areas where you normally wouldn't produce things like leafy greens. Most of the leafy greens we consume in the United States are produced in Salinas Valley, California, different parts of California. And investing in indoor agriculture helps diversify uh, that food chain by producing food closer to where it's consumed the consumer, which reduce a lot of waste, uh, produces a better product, fresher product, and also uh, does things like consume less water, doesn't produce the runoff that, that field-grown agriculture does, year-round growing cycles, numerous benefits. So that's the first sector we like. Another vertical that we're in is grass-fed livestock and sustainably raised livestock. So we've done sheep and cattle in and, and that respect, and that's a premium product. It takes longer to grow than gra- grain-fed. And some people claim it's it's a healthier, better tasting product. Among those, I like it, but it's also uh, better for the environment as far as regenerating the soil. So that's something that our investors have taken a liking to. Then we we do what I'll call cats and dogs or specialty crops. We've done things like vineyards, hazelnut trees, other sort of non-row crop, non-commodity types of, of products across the country. And then the final sector that we like is ag tech. So this is something we've recently started doing just because there's this huge demand in agriculture technology, early stage companies for capital. And they have these companies that normally work with VCs. A lot of them come to either in conjunction with the VC or before they talk to venture capitalists to raise that sort of initial seed round. After they shed some traction, some sales, some revenue, we, we like to talk to them. And we've done very well. And we're helping a number of companies early stage. Obviously, each of these Verticals has a different sort of risk return profile with the most riskiest is these early stage ag tech companies, but also the highest payoff uh, down to the, the controlled environment agriculture. You'll see IRs north of 20%. These are kind of like you think of it as is, is a real estate development So you're either taking a a brownfield place or sort of greenfield developments where you're either starting from scratch on a piece of land or you're starting with an old building and repurposing it to grow indoors. So we like all these spaces and our our investors, it's kind of narrowed and differentiated us because we're one of the few places you you can access some of these certain niches.
1: And how do your investors actually access these deals that you're participating in? Are they coming in at the deal level or do you have a larger fund that is diversified or or do you have different thematic funds? How do you have that structured for your investors?
2: Yeah. So the way our, our platform works is if we pool investors. We invest via a special purpose vehicle directly into the operating company or, or the farmer, the rancher, and we will, our ticket size, our minimum ticket size ranges anywhere between you know dollars to $25,000. And so what it enables is people who have maybe allocated a portion of their portfolio to agriculture, but maybe haven't done so. And so it allows them to do, say, 25, 50K of, into multiple deals, which provides them with some geographic diversity, some, just some diversity within inside the asset class. And that's, we have investors that have done multiple repeat investments and they lack the ability to kind of spread their, spread their wealth
1: across our different uh, offerings. Gotcha. So they get on your platform, which I believe they can access on your website at harvestreturns.com, and they'll have access to a, a variety of different types of investments and they can kind of spread their money around as they choose. They're not just coming into like one large blended fund, per se.
2: Correct. We're doing a regulation D exception offering, so probably most of your listeners are familiar with those. Primarily taking accredited, although some of them have a limited number of sophisticated or non-accredited investors that can access the deals. We don't do regulation crowdfunding, which is sort of retail-investing we're you know a thousand dollars pop sort of thing. We're we're not in that space. At some point we might be, but, but right now we're helping with kind of those high net worth folks diversify a portion of the portfolio.
1: Yep, no, that's great. That is our listener base: high net worth, accredited investors, by and large. What about the deal size? What's the typical size of the deals that you're investing in?
2: So that varies. You know, on some of our early stage, let's say ag tech deals, ag tech companies. We might be doing a, a seed round for them that, that totals five hundred to a million dollars, five hundred k to a million dollars, in some of the let's say large scale indoor agriculture deals, greenhouse deals. It might be a forty or fifty million dollar project, and we are simply one portion of the equity stack that might be combined with a larger debt portion. So very similar to uh, commercial real estate, how you might structure a commercial real estate or any other sort of private placement offering.
1: Gotcha, that makes sense. Well, Chris, you and I met probably about two or three years ago. I, th- I think we ran into each other at one or two different Opportunity Zone conferences that were being put on in in 2018 and 2019. Because you had the first or one of the first at least Opportunity Zone funds that was focused in this sector. You had a QOZB that focused on farming and an OZ fund on top of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that fund and m- maybe share with us some of the challenges? Uh, that you faced when using the Qualified Opportunity Fund investment wrapper?
2: Yeah, so we launched our Sustainable Agriculture Opportunity Zone Fund, I believe it was the end of 2019. We deployed some of that capital that we've raised into a single asset, which is a an indoor farm slash restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska. I was just up there a couple of weeks ago, right after the grand opening. An amazing restaurant called Gather Open Omaha. Many of your uh, listeners are up there. We're still taking investments, although we will probably close the fund at the end of this year. We're still deploying a little bit of capital into that, that farm restaurant project. As far as the challenges go, Farming New Investors is a QOZB fund, and, and we had we reviewed a lot of OZ agriculture OZ deals. I'm sure some of your listeners might be familiar with the statistic, but approximately forty percent of the designated opportunity zones or rural areas. And it was originally our intention to kind of deploy some capital into those areas. And we found out that talking to our investors, most of them were interested in the real estate deals rather than the qualified opportunity zone businesses, which was a challenge. Some of the feedback we got from our investors was they just weren't happy with the lockup period for the 10 years, or were a little bit worried about the uncertainty of regulations. And we're still seeing that as far as the craziness going on in the tax side, although I think everybody with Opportunity Zones is probably, investments is probably safe, but it didn't go quite as we planned. That said, there are a lot of good deals. We've probably reviewed 80 deals on Opportunity Zones, ag-related, and we still have some of those deals in our pipeline, although we may not be offering them in a QOZ uh, wrapper. So it's, I think it was a good program. I think it will likely continue to evolve slowly, and that's probably a good thing, but for us, it's a small portion of what we do.
1: Gotcha. I just had to ask about opportunity zones because I'm the opportunity zone guy, right? So (laughs) thanks for indulging me for a moment there. I want to bring in my co-host now, Andy. I know Andy has some questions for you on some trends and some macroeconomic trends and how they may relate to the sector that you're investing in. Chris, Andy, take it away. So Chris, you mentioned
3: that some potential investors were uncomfortable with the 10-year life cycle of a QOZB investment, which makes sense. I mean, 10 years is a very long lockup here that's very illiquid. But that being said, typically direct investments and alts do have less liquidity and have that longer life cycle anyway, although not necessarily full out to 10 years. So I'm curious, what's like the typical life cycle for one of your investment opportunities or how soon could an investor receive liquidity without necessarily paying a penalty or getting a a discount on their redemption or anything like that. Like what do you plan for in terms of that liquidity or capital gain event?
2: Great question. We have multiple kind of deal structures. So ranging from short term collateralized grass, fed cattle notes that that are as short as a year in duration. And so it's just typical debt instrument where you're essentially pulling your investment. We make a loan to a a company, they go out, buy some cows, they grow the cows, they sell the cows. They pay us the the interest, basically split that interest with the operator. Two longer term deals, we like to structure our equity deals with multiple exit potentials. So they might range anywhere between a a three year to an eight or 10 year offering length and some of those potential exit opportunities are just like you might see in a commercial real estate where a project is, is built up, developed, stabilized, and then. Either refinance, which cashes our investors out at sort of a predetermined rate of return or produces enough cash flow to cash out our investors. And then on some of the ag tech deals and a few of the other deals, they're the exit we're ideally looking for is some sort of merger and acquisition or even an IPO. And those are within the ag space itself, especially the indoor ag space. We've seen quite a bit of activity in the past year or two involving SPACs and IPOs and and a few unicorns involved in the in- indoor ag space, Aero Farms, Bright Farms. There's several others that are they're doing indoor growing. And yeah, we're about to see most of our investments are, are fairly immature as far as the duration. Our average investment, I think, is duration right now is not, is about 14, 15 months because you know, the platform is growing rather rapidly. So... We're, we'll see some equity in uh, exits hopefully here in the next year or so. One of our farms in Kentucky, a big greenhouse, should be exiting in the spring. They're doing some refinancing activities and things like that. So we're hoping to exit out our investors pretty much right at the target IRR.
3: Great. I'm not surprised to hear that your platform is growing quickly. The market is so hot right now, just overall, like macro. Of course, we're talking now in October of twenty twenty one. You know, there's been a slight pullback in the market this month, but valuations with equities, valuations are about as high as they've ever been. And of course, that's not just the stock market. If you look at residential real estate, it's like wow. We thought going into maybe twenty nineteen, early twenty twenty that maybe we were at the end of a residential real estate cycle. And then COVID and the lockdowns hit and it was a reset button was pushed, right? And it's almost like, wow, that was the beginning of another cycle with a lot of gas behind it. So looking across all these asset classes, valuations are starting to look pretty stretched, like a little bit dicey. But that being said, cash has to go somewhere, right? And we've seen in the opportunity zone space, a lot of people are locking in these capital gains, then the cash has to go somewhere. And you know, they might be getting capital gains in the equities market in residential real estate, and so on. So for me, it's this kind of double edged sword as an asset manager. It's like the good news is, there's a lot of cash looking for investment opportunities. The bad news is it seems like valuations are high almost across the board. Is that true in terms of farming and agribusiness? Like have you seen multiples increased significantly in the past 12 months? And how does that affect, I guess, how you're making investments in, let's say the next 12 months?
2: Yes, it really depends on the sector of agriculture you're looking at. So I will say some commodity markets are really hot. So when you talk about heavily traded agriculture commodities everybody talks about that I just mentioned you know, the corn and soy, those markets were in a fairly long-term slump up until about a year or so ago. And now they're on fire. And in turn, they drive land prices. And, and not every deal we offer has a, a land component. But if you look at the states, U.S. farmland, the valuations are very high. So I just saw today that there was a piece of farmland in Iowa, which out of the Midwest, very fertile land, very highly desired, went for $26,000 an acre. The same land was going for maybe $7,000, $8,000 an acre a few years ago. So that... I would say that market's getting a little overheated. If you look at the spaces that we're involved in, they're very nascent. So indoor ag is a very new industry. We're we're looking for the diamond in the rough. You know, we're looking for the rate crop of vertical farms who can take a figure out kind of the secret sauce of running a small urban farm and do it over and over again. It's kind of the reverse of what you see happening in the. The publicly traded market where you've got some very significant institutional investments hundred million dollars and min some into some of these places like arrow farms and bright farms and things like that where big investor money is coming in and now they're trying to make a profit with that money and like a lot of companies that's easier than said it done sometimes it's easier to start with less money than more money and spend it more wisely and grow more uh, strategically than to you know, spread that peanut butter very thinly. So we work with small to mid-market farmers all over the country and even in emerging markets. And obviously, you know, if you're looking for undervalued assets, like in many cases, you're going to go overseas. And we actually have done some overseas offerings and, and we're working on some more in um, emerging markets or even frontier markets where land is very cheap, labor is very cheap, and there's a lot of room for growth and there's a growing consumer base as well.
3: Interesting. Okay, so you're still seeing value. I mean, that's a good answer for someone raising money to do deals. But it is interesting that valuations are up across every asset, but some asset classes are up 50% and others are up 200%. So to some extent, it as an investor, speaking as an investor, the mission is to seek out that relative value, right? Which That brings me to my next question. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about who is your typical investor. I'm looking through your platform now and I see the minimum investment size, depending on the opportunity, is $10,000 or $20,000 or $25,000, which I I think is pretty cool really because that means if an investor had, let's say, $100,000 that they wanted to invest with you, they could even diversify that across different projects. But I'm wondering, is your typical investor like a self-directed investor or... Do they tend to be more RIAs or, or family offices working on behalf of a very high net worth investor? What's your typical investment amount? And also, do you have any sense if a high net worth investor is is making an allocation to agriculture and farming? What portion of their total portfolio that they're allocating to? Investor
2: base is variable. We have I think there's about eight thousand investors as of right now. That have actually registered on platform. A smaller number of those have actually invested. Many of them like to kind of watch and, and learn, and we're big on that. Once you be comfortable with the platform, comfortable with our offerings and the process before you invest. Our the average investment size we see is north of twenty thousand dollars. Some cases it's six figures. Our investors are yes. Yeah, Primarily self-directed investors who are looking to diversify out of the typical equity markets, but we do have some family offices that you know people I talk to directly, primarily the principals that are you know investing small portions of their portfolio. I don't know if I could pin down a number. I'd say somewhere between five and fifteen. They're looking to diversify into kind of natural resources and in agriculture. That's probably pretty similar to what you'll see on the institutional side, where university endowment, pension funds, things like that are are investing in farmland. But you see, the people reading the headlines this past year have seen Bill Gates buying up major swaths of U.S. farmland. Of course, Warren Buffett, Ted Turner, and others are part of that trend as well.
1: Chris, I'm going to hop back in here. Wanted to get back to some of your investment offerings. Are there any more examples that you can provide for our audience in any of those four sectors that you cited earlier? Indoor ag, grass-fed livestock? ag tech, and then I think you had that grab bag category where you were investing in non-row crop, non-commodity type products. What are some of your favorite examples of some offerings that you have available right now or that you've invested in in the past? I'm just curious.
2: So right now our opportunity Zone Fund is live. We will be uh, launching a 506C offering with an indoor recirculating aquaculture system. So it's called RAV. This is basically growing fish indoors, an indoor fish farm. This one's in Florida, and that offering should be going live probably by the time people start listening to this. So uh, those are, you know, some of our current offerings, some of our recent offerings. We closed just uh, a while back a, a vineyard in West Texas, and people think West Texas, if, if you're from Texas, you know, West Texas is primarily dry, but there's parts that are not that are on, you know, very fertile aquif- aquifers, and our vineyards, just happen to be on there. But the thing, Texas wine is pretty popular, but what most people don't know about Texas wine is that a big chunk of it's made out of California grapes. So this particular vineyard operator is working to change that and, and grow grapes more affordably in Texas so that Texas vineyards or Texas wineries can use the Texas grown grapes rather than having to import them from California and sticking a Texas label on it.
1: That's interesting. Texas wine. What are they going to think of next? <laughs> well, Chris, thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. We're going to wrap up here. For our listeners out there today, we will have show notes, as always, on the AltsDB website. You can find links to all of the resources that we discussed today with our guest, Chris Raleigh, at altsdb.com slash podcast. Chris, before we go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Harvest Returns?
2: The best place to start is harvestreturns.com, our website. We have a blog, a lot of educational materials, references to several podcasts like this, where we talk about different types of assets. And you can learn more about us. You can also follow us on social media, the typical channels, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram.
1: Fantastic. And I'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes for today's episode. So yeah, please do go check out Chris and uh, Harvest Returns at harvestreturns.com. Chris, thanks for joining us today.
0: That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com you can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast and we'll be back soon with another episode